we remember with our bodies. This is by essence what African cultures have been. It's not remembering is not just cerebral, it's embodied. But the thing is for me right now, if I'm making a dance about, you know, forced immigrant, like a Im immigration that basically um, African people are going through. And the question then is, who's my target? Who am I talking to? Who do I want this piece to speak to? It's probably not just these Africans who are, you know, embracing the Atlantic Ocean or actually crossing the Sahara in order to make their way to Malaya or, you know, those Spanish territories risking their lives because they've gotten to a point in which they identify themselves as martyrs. For, for them, dying, going there is, is a way of saying, I've tried. So it, it's, it's that serious, you know, like somebody who's getting ready to go, you go to them, you ask them, don't go. They were like, are you mad? Welcome to Migrations, a world on the move, a series brought to you by Cornell University's Migrations Initiative. I'm Eleanor Painter, ACLS Fellow and Migrations Fellow, and your host for this podcast that seeks to understand our world through the interconnected movements that shape it. In this season on Crossing, we're thinking about the many kinds of borders that shape migration experiences. We've talked about how migration involves moving between languages and memories. In this episode, we're focusing on dance. What can dancers' movements tell us about the movement of people across geopolitical borders? How do choreographers address questions of mobility and human rights in their work? Our guest today is Momar Njai, assistant professor of dance at Ohio State University and a celebrated choreographer. Momar's work in African dance and contemporary dance is internationally recognized, and he's toured across the U.S. and abroad. To interview Momar, I'm joined by Dr. Amy Schumann, Professor Emerita at Ohio State University. Her formative work in narrative studies includes books, articles, and collaborations on human rights and political asylum. I was lucky enough to study with Amy during my own doctoral work, and it's really wonderful to have her on the podcast. Momar and Amy are co-editors, along with Wendy Hesford, of a forthcoming volume from the Ohio State University Press called Human Rights on the Move, which will feature a version of this conversation. In this episode, Momar, Amy, and I talk broadly about human rights and migration in post-colonial contexts. We talk about how ideas of human rights operate and fail, and what that has to do with the crossing of borders. And through the lens of dance, we recognize migration as an embodied experience. You'll hear Momar refer to a work he choreographed called Tohu, which responds to the precarious and too often deadly crossings of people who depart on repurposed boats from the Senegalese coast and attempt to reach the Canary Islands. This nearly 1,000-mile trek is incredibly risky, but for those who survive the crossing, it means a chance to obtain asylum in Europe and to build a better life. Here's our conversation that centers movement and creative expression as key parts of negotiating and renegotiating questions of human rights. So I'm Amy Schumann, and I'm a professor emerita at Ohio State University. My work in human rights focuses on two areas, on political asylum, where I've worked 
as a co-author with Carol Bomer, who's a lawyer and sociologist, to actually help people to get political asylum. My area of specialization is narrative and the stories people need to tell in order to get political asylum. And the other area is disability and human rights. And I am Mama Yai. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Dance. Um, I am originally from Senegal, West Africa, and I made my way to the U.S. 10 years ago and since, you know, didn't leave. <laughs> and uh, again, I'm a choreographer, a dancer, and a perform uh, a dancer and a videographer. Um, so my research is actually has a lot of tentacles, if I'm not sure if it's a French, like a different connection because I identify as a multidisciplinary. There's no way to do what I do without tapping on other fields of studies, which um, because, you know, where I'm from and the notions of colonialities, the notion of, you know, cultural um, imperialism and how it affects the bodies uh, in the way they operate and behave in the world, and then all that funneling through dance um, as a practice of embodiment, uh, embodiment of trauma, embodiment of of, of identity, politics, and, and, and all that. So, um, which again, if, if we look at it in the context of mobility, can cannot, you know, that's why when, when I look at human rights, it's more toward those concepts of mobility and um and also the, the notion of being a human, yeah. So I wanted to ask you to speak more about the concept of the human and the ways that particular cultural understandings of the human have become important to you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it, that is the, uh, the first, the very important thing to look at is language first, like how people talk about certain things, you know, and um, I'm a Wolof. And, and, you know, circling around, going to Congo, different places, and even, you know, there is a term in the language that they use to, 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 to say human. And then in Wolof, we say nit. And it doesn't stop there. It says nit, which is the biological being, and nite, which is the consciousness inside of that person that, um, you know, connects to the behavior, connects to the interpersonal, you know, the way we deal and treat, treat other people. Uh, when we say nit, they nite. So nite is the, that aspect of embracing and embodying and living fully that concept of, you know, humanness, humanness um, which is how you interact with, with people, what kind of citizen you want to be. In the community, how sociable you are, how 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 the list is is long, um, and and I've come to realize this pretty much in all African societies that I've been, they have the same kind of concept, which is, you know, a state of progressing in time and space, which means you know we don't think about human as something statical, but we think about human as something that progress, that becomes, that change, that shift with an ideal of a perfection, which, you know, like, again, it's preloaded sometimes because when we say perfection, um, we, we start now imagining all those like concept of, you know, uh, codes and, you know, um, you know, standardization of minds and stuff like that. What is normal? What is not normal? And how do we deal and negotiate with the others with regard to the, those normalcy? 
Um, so there, the, in one hand, it's the, that stage of uh, that process of becoming and evolving in time and space, along with the process of of acknowledging the other as the same way, because you give and then you take. So it's it's always a continual you know, me proving how human I am in the way I behave and then expecting in return to get that, which again, like I said, it can be problematic depending on which lenses we're using to look at it. How does what you're talking about in terms of this this process of becoming, moving towards what you talked about as perfection, mm-hmm. how does that relate to a notion of human rights? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's this... Um... You know, because what I I run into the text, you know, the Declaration of Human Rights in my twenties, um, and the way it happened was um, I was competing. It was a dance national dance competition in Senegal, and I was part of. And our the theme of that year was human rights, the Declaration of Human Rights, just as a text to use to work on. And we talk about Senegal in nineteen ninety eight, um, and. Our job was at that time to not critique it, but more to um, to learn it and offer accurate translation of it in local languages. And that in itself as a a way of competing. So whoever had the clearest translation of it in Wolof and portraying it clearly from, from French to Wolof, you have the point. So I happened to be the one who represented the group doing that. So which offered me a lot of time after repeti- after after practice rehearsal. So I would just stay when, while my friends are drinking tea, talking, I'm sitting there learning all the declarations or like all the articles, knowing them by heart. And then after that, going to uh, my, um, my godfather, who was a movie translator and uh, sitting with him and he would guide me through the process of actually translating it in proper Wolof, which bring us again to another thing, colonialities, and then how our native tongues are being affected tremendously by French and now English. So long story short, um, that was my first entry point to, to, um, to the text. But then I started realizing not so many people know about that. I, you know, the last time I worked with students, um, high school students, these are high school students, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. And um, it was the remake of this piece, you know, I'm, I'm talking about. And then I asked them to bring it to their own reality within the context of the United States. At that time, it was the wall. <laughs> And yeah, they all picked an article and then worked with it. They they offered a critique of the article and then of the border wall, you mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's what I refer to by the wall. Is um, yeah. Um, so they all offered a critique and then geared the critique towards that wall that they all agreed was insane and inhuman. So we always going back to that concept of humanness, humankind, what it is, what we mean when we say I'm a human, and then how that is in conversation with all these texts. So where have these explorations taken you toward thinking about how people treat others as other, as less than human? And where does this sense of humanness, which can be very firmly located in one's cultural sense of self, 
then disappear when one thinks about others and and or the uh, uh, the other side of that, which these students might have been talking about, experiencing being treated as other, as less than human. Yeah, I think that's the the, the major problem: the the concept of otherness, um, otherness in the way that okay, this for for example. I remember the president of the United States, the 45th president of the United States saying, United States saying these people are bringing their disease there, 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 there. And um, it, it was so close to bringing diplomatic problems between the U.S. and all African countries. Um, so it's how do we look at others as intruders first? Because no matter what, whenever we look at the civil wars that happen, the concept of otherness is there. It's the people being looked at as intruders. And when we say intruders, it's the foreign person coming to invade my space. So, and then, you know, the question, especially when we look at, um, you know, mobilities and stuff, that people always say, why can't they stay at home? Why are they trying to come here, you know, and take what I have? This, this is this is when things start getting a little bit complicated. So there is this notion of, you know, it's the other. We don't look at the human. We're just looking at the other. And the other is coming from a poor country. And the other is coming to bring such 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 you know disease and you know malaria and 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 then borders starts you know the when i say borders we have the physical the, the you know the mental borders of the space which is interhuman and then the physical border of the in between countries so then you know the concept of it's never my fault it's their fault so they can stay at home and try to develop their countries. They, they don't have to come here. So if they try to cross the ocean and die, it's their fault. It's, 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 it's never, we, we don't have that sense of uh, introspection and you know the question of what is my, my responsibility in this? It's because we are always looking at the others. It's their fault, you know. I'm, I'm here. I'm occupying this space. It's my space. I don't want anybody to come, compromise it and trouble it. So, so the concept of otherness is really, really there, and I think that's the the, the bedrock of all these issues we're talking about. And the other side of it is responsibility for others, and yeah. I know yeah. that plays a, a role in your work. Uh, that sense of responsibility for others, of um, what it means to have a responsibility beyond the self, first of all, for the community, but then people who aren't even in the community for others. I wondered if you'd speak more about that. Yeah, um, it's, uh, you know, I look at it just from the concept of a very easy and simple concept if we successfully adapt and, and, and uh, you know, and it's the concept of Ubuntu, Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U. It's from South Africa. And, um, and it's, it's how do I care about, you know, the community? So then the community cares about me. 
And then, you know, Mandela has, Nelson Mandela had a very nice interpretation of it. He's like, he said, it's not a way of removing yourself. It cannot be a way of removing yourself because when we say I am because we are, um, you, you're not removing yourself. You're placing actually yourself into in the center of this conversation because without you being well, the community cannot be well. And, you know, there's always that notion of circularity of, you know, community giving to you and you giving back. It, it's If we successfully get to that point, you know, the concept of otherness would disappear and, and maybe locally first and then globally. You know, how do we prioritize those, you know, the human first and then think about community, think about, you know, a togetherness in terms of personal development, you know, um, which, again, if you look at the, uh, you know, the indicator of human development, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's one of the, uh, the tools we use to measure, uh, you know, the economical growth of countries. You, you may, I mean, when you look at that, you see even the U.S. is not the number one, the top country in terms of economical development, because we have to see how we're looking and prioritizing the well-being of humans. Yes, well-being is a concept that's coming up in several of the essays that we're publishing in this volume. And it's interestingly coming up always from the perspective of people in the global south. And it seems to be a concept that's missing in the actual human rights declaration. One of the critiques, as you know, of the declaration is that it was drafted very much by the global north, by the West, and um, and really didn't take into account these other concepts. So it has it has failed in many ways. So one question would be, could it be recovered if we were to pay attention to something like this concept of Ubuntu or other ways of understanding the self in relation to community. And maybe even, this is really a separate question, but maybe that would help to resolve the questions of national sovereignty that have been in the way of international human rights. The yeah. I mean, I have problem imagining the process of decolonization being effective, you know, 400 years later. Things have been so much embedded in the man, the mental of, of people and in, in reimagining the concept of normalcy within that context of, you know, hybridity, which means we are all hybrid now. There is Europeanness in me, there is Africanness in me, and so on and so forth. How can we decolonize that? It's I don't think it's impossible. However, we could reimagine again, you know, what I call what I imagine as being an ethical intercultural system, both from the legislation, which is imagined by the states, the big heads and the small heads and then trickling down all the way to people it, because people in some local settings are still applying the concept of Ubuntu. I've seen it, I'm seeing it in some, but it's very local. It's very local and these are places that are less affected by, you know, um, Western modernity. They are there, they have no choice but to support one another and lift one another. My kid is everybody's kid. And it, it's that concept, it takes a whole village to raise a kid. This is true there. Um, but now how can we allow that space to grow and grow and grow? 
And, um, you know, we could, I think we could use the declaration as a, as a starting point. But there's a lot of things that needs to be opened way more. You know, it's it starts from reimagining who's it for. If you, I, what I hear you saying is that a decolonized reality is not, is not likely, is perhaps not possible. Do you still think that the world you're describing might be shaped by decolonial processes? Like, I'm wondering if then the, the, the kind of approach of decoloniality is is worth embracing still or if you're talking about imagining something completely outside of some of the frameworks that that scholars and and practitioners are thinking with today you see i'm i'm looking at myself first you know and and this is when my work has is coming back it's from me um who was born and raised in dakar you know the latest capital of the african you know west West African French colonies, African Occidental Francais. Um, and what it is that is impacting me, how I understand the world, and 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 so on and so forth is conditioned by all that. You know, and the reason why I say is, is I start from me is because you know it's good to have all these theories and stuff. You know, but then we 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 are starting to go back to where the Declaration of Human Rights was, which is actually these theories are an observation of phenomenon, but we have to consider the fact that it's not statical; it's it's evolving all the time at a pace it's really hard for observers to keep track. So you know, when when we now go to Senegal, for example, go to Dakar and we look at people and we ask them about colonialities and stuff like that. They will look at you and ask, what are you talking about? Many of them, what are you talking about? It's because it, it has gotten to a point of being normal to speak French, you know, in order to prove that you are sophisticated, in order to prove that you're an intellectual. You know, and now we have English sliding into the language. Like if 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 somebody doesn't speak a broken Wolof, you know, mixed with some words of English and some words in French, they it's you know it's not sophisticated enough. You know, so you know, and again, what I'm saying is really problematic in so many levels. That's it's just how you know colonialities have been embedded so much so much into the daily living of you know those africans who remain in africa and are have and have no choice because the the language you 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 like one learns how to process either foreign language you you speak wolof in in the house with your mother and your father and then you go to school the moment you step into the classroom is french so the concept of rationalities and stuff like that, it's literally French. And I remember somebody saying one of the major mission of colonialism was to whiten the mind of the African, which is now what, why I say it's really in an ideal world, you know, yeah, we could go back to hundreds of years ago and then start over <laughs> and come back, make our way to where we are. But then what do we do with these concepts of fluidity in terms of 
you know, and so on and so forth, because culture is fluid, it's not rigid. Sometimes we imagine, we think about it as this, this is here, this is here, there's no interconnection between the two. That's that's not true. I don't believe in that. So just to say, you know, I, I don't necessarily believe in, uh, you know, decolonialism in the way we imagine it, but I do believe in an ethical intercultural system in which, you know, my values as an African can be considered, I can be valued as a person. You know, I don't have to wear European clothes in order to matter. If I if I bite on it, it's fine. And nobody will be there to judge me, which is embracing the hybrid self who we are right now. I'm very interested in these hybridities and um, what are sometimes described as creolization, especially in Latin America and Argentina, where a colleague of mine, Anakara, works on um, this idea of creolization as a reflexive verb to creolize oneself. It's a dynamic, as you're saying, process, not static. And this idea of constantly doing in everyday life, re-creolizing everything, whether it's food or dance, in that case, the tango or um, uh, or dress or economies. You know, what does a Creole economy look like? The values of Creolizing as a process, right? And hybridizing, which is very different, I think you're saying, I agree with you, than decolonizing, which is a an act of removing, right? Trying to extract out the colonizing forces, but instead to say, no, we've built something new. The Wolof French English world is something that you embrace and you don't have to police its boundaries. Now we're back to boundaries and mobility and say, um, no, we can't have this many English words or French words, but rather to recognize the ways that that is um, uh, in, in that's dynamic, I think is what you're saying. And, and, I, and then I think it might turn us to thinking about dance. I know that for the people who look at creolization, dance is a really fundamental place where this happens. Yeah. And you so, already talked about, um, I mean, I was thinking about this when you were talking about your first encounter with the Declaration of Human Rights as an act of translation. I think dance also might be a kind of translation as well, or Amy, as you're saying, perhaps a practice of creolization. Yeah, I mean, when when you was when you were talking, Amy, I remembered one thing that I encountered when I, um, you know, I think I was in grad school, and then it's like one of those times I was very yes, let's decolonize this, 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 and that. And um, in the room, there was a there was somebody who um, whose whose father is Senegalese, but his mother is French, and he was born and raised in France. So, you know, when we're talking about, and I was giving the example of my nephew who, um, who was, who never left Senegal, but he's going to, uh, he got a, he won a grant and, uh, you know, started studying at the French school, like basically with French kids and stuff like that. So he started uh, somewhat rejecting the Wolof, he, his Wolof and stuff. You would prompt him in Wolof and he would respond in French. And I was offering that as a critic. And he said, but where do I fit in the picture? 
That's what he 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 asked me. And it was a moment of like, oh, okay, actually, I'm I'm doing what I what I don't what actually I'm I'm fighting against is what I'm actually doing to him because. Yes, he was born and raised in France, but he's totally embracing his Senegalese side, which is coming from his father. But if I come and say, you know, yeah, if you don't speak well of you, not you, you colonize, then you know I'm missing the whole point because he is, you know, the actual example of a hybrid body, you know, who's longing and wanting to still grab you know, his origins as Senegalese, but also wanting to stay true to his origin as French. This is another thing colonialism has done, you know, those hybrid bodies, people, we call it mestizo in, 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 you know, in some, in, I think in Portugal, they call it mestizo, in Metis in French, and, and where do they fit in the picture? You know, do, can we oppress them? No. Should we embrace them the way they are? Yes. But again, it's a process. And then I want to be mindful about, you know, what it is people are experiencing in their everyday life that kind of open that door for that curialization to happen, you know, which is embracing and rejecting at the same time. And dance big time, dance big time, because, you know, the concept of neo-traditional dance is, is literally one way to look at it. You know, and it's it's we're looking at things we call traditional dances. You know, taken from a specific say, space, they fulfill specific functions, but then they put the stage. You know, just that process of you know taking, staging, in here is done by Africans themselves. Maybe we could say it started with you know the emergence of the national ballets, the national dance companies, and stuff. So the, the notion of proscenium being applied to, you know, something that's meant to operate in the circle is always a phenomenon that started somewhat the creolization in dance. And then another way to look at it, even when we look at the context of Africa, and here I'm not talking about European coming in, but just in Africa, in Africa, between the ethnic groups. It, the creolization was already happening. Here, I'm saying it's the reality of the things, because like I mentioned before, we imagine culture rigid and they're fluid. So the Wolof, the Serer, the Pular, and those ethnic groups, they are so close to one another. If you look at their dances, if you look at the drums and the musics and all that, they are influencing one another. And it's a continual process. It doesn't stop. I mean, colonialism is another thing to look at. And then we, we talk to talk about it. But fluidity and creolization, I will argue, didn't necessarily come from Europe. It was already happening in Africa. Yeah. You're talking in several different ways about dance as an embodiment, a representation of, and a response to these aspects of hybridity and creolization and fluidity that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. um, and also cultural traditions and, and sort of thinking, being able to carry out a practice over time as these ideas and as people change, as communities change. Um, I want to ask about how, how those ideas 
inform your work in the context of migration. I think you've done some choreography and some performance also around the idea of crossing borders. And maybe we can, since since we're talking also about coloniality, um, maybe we can also take up the question of, of post-colonial migrations and thinking about some of the work that you've done around movement. And I'm curious about how, um, from my own rudimentary understanding of dance, how the the movement of a of a person or of a group in a choreographed piece might also relate to the actual movement towards or across a border. Mm-hmm. So what I'm thinking is movement as you know a traditional from a traditional perspective, right? Um, and then movement in the present context. When 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 I and this is this is my research actually. When I look at the traditional forms, what are the earliest version available of a particular traditional dance that I can find? You know, and it's 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 literally a digging, a digging, a digging, a digging in order to get closer to, you know, the oldest version still alive, and. Again, you know, we're talking about a time in which documentation has changed, you know, and and again, you know, this is from something Fosan was talking about and we share, which is, you know, the trace, the, the embodied trace, like a, basically we, we remember with our bodies. This is by essence what African cultures have been. It's not remembering, it's not just cerebral. It's embodied. So if you go, the Ga people who, who migrated from what people say from, you know, Eastern Africa all the way to Ghana, and then we have the wall of stuff. Historically, we say migrated also from the Egyptian area, come, come in, come in, come in. So there's already this phenomenon of migration that are somewhat represented somewhere in the dance. But if we have to look deep, deep in order to identify and, and find them. But the thing is, for me right now, if I'm making a dance about, you know, forced immigrant, like a Im- immigration that basically um, African people are going through. And the question then is, who's my target? Who am I talking to? Who do I want this piece to speak to? It's probably not just these Africans who are, you know, embracing the Atlantic Ocean or actually crossing the Sahara in order to make their way to Malaya or, you know, those Spanish territories risking their lives because they've gotten to a point in which they identify themselves as martyrs. For them, dying, going there is, is a way of saying, I've tried. So it, it's it's that serious, you know, like somebody who's getting ready to go, you go to them, you ask them, don't go. They were like, are you mad? I'd rather go die than staying here, looking at my mom in the morning, looking at my, my wife in the morning and my kids and not being able to provide food. There's so, a phrase people use for this, right? Yep. In in this context I'm describing, it was Barça or Barçach, Barcelona or death. Barçach is the uh, the other the other realm of you know when we die where we go. So that was the slogan: Barça 
wala bagsak. So, do I want to talk to those people still? Yes. But who do I want to sensitize more? Who do I want to invite more towards, you know, a reaction? It's mostly those countries who are actually all the people who are looking at those folks as others. So then it, would it be relevant for me to craft a dance that's purely traditional? I don't, I don't think so. But it would be relevant for me to craft something that would bridge and embrace that concept of hybridity in some ways, you know, and be accessible to both people. This is when the crafting is really important in my work. The movement vocabulary is not preconceived or preset, it is researched and, and discovered through the process of finding what is relevant. What do these people understand, what they don't understand, and how do I play with those, those elements? And then the symbolic around the object we use. Um, also the testimonies, because what I've seen so much in, in art is usually an art, a piece of art, especially in dance that's meant to fulfill an act of activism in some ways is kind of blurred by the virtuosity of the dance. Um, now the question is, how can we stay in the space of dance, but dance as a mode of communication? First and foremost, before the beauty of it, before, 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 it has to say something. Yeah, and um, then, you know, for that particular work, there was actual testimonies of people who tried. Basically, people saying, narrating their experiences and stuff during the crossing, getting so close. And I have a very close friend of mine who grew up together who did it. Um, it's always tears coming out when he narrates, when he tells a story. Like the process of crossing and then even seeing death, literally right here with all the sharks, because there is a space when they cross the ocean, sharks are always there waiting because they that's where the sails would break. And, you know, this is something that needed to be close to people who are actually othering the others by saying, stay at home. This is, well, is, it, is there a little fiber of humanness inside of you that could actually look at this and say, I'm sorry, I should do better. So this is then when we have, I have to be very strategic about the movement vocabulary I use, the symbolics around the object I use, but also all the mediums, sound, lightings, and all that to come to contribute. So then at the end, I can say something with my dance. Since you're talking about movement and I... Mm -hmm. Um, and we're on this sort of we're on in, in this audio format and we'll move into the written word later. Is there just one even small example that you could try and and illustrate for us in words, just to give us a picture of how some of what you're talking about might appear to someone who's watching? Yeah, for 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 that piece, you know, we use cardboard boxes different formats, small, very big, medium, medium, medium. So in the beginning of the process for me was, huh, what is this thing? Why am I attached to this core? Because it started just being something that I was really attached to. It's because, yeah, it's the way it can be multifunctional. And it's the first go-to when we talk about moving. 
it's it's basically once we start packing, we start we go, we get a cardboard. But it also symbolizes poverty in some ways because um, if we see people who are homeless, for example, it's a great value to them. They make shelter using it, and so. But carrying that box, carrying all my stuff, walking to one place to another has weight into my body. There's, it does something to the body, a specific posture, a specific, you know, just holding it like this, depending on its weight, my shoulder would tighten up or would release, you know, my leg would be bent. Where, you know, there is that heaviness of the thing depending on its size and then how many stuff are packed into it. So basically we 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 it's that we played with with those shapes in order to come up with the movement vocabulary that ex, that expands and expands and expands, coming from an angular ness to a circularness. Um but there's always you know this impact to the chest happening constantly and all the time which is a reminder of who we are where we are coming from and where we go all the time because even there is this curvilinearity that starts coming from the angularity which refer to capitalistic ways of doing and circularity of things when we look at african context yeah, oh, yeah. Thanks. It's that strikes me then as you were talking about this as both material and symbolic. I mean, in the symbolic realm, thinking especially about people who are departing Senegal to try and reach the Canary Islands, mm-hmm. of course, they can't take boxes with them. So oh. thinking also about the you're prompting me to think about the, the the weight of everything that is carried, even with someone who perhaps only puts something in a Ziploc bag and tucks it into their pocket. They They go there with, with nothing. They don't bring anything. It's just the the body going. The cardboard box would find them in Europe if they successfully cross. Because there is the dramaturgy of the third barriers. The first one is the water. The second one is when you land. The third one is the returning. Because it's the process of actually going is easier than the process of figuring out who you are in Europe with no support, nobody, with all the laws and regulation, you cannot walk, work. It's a, it's a game of chase, like you, the police behind you, you're running, and this is only when you make it in the, <laughs> you're already in the territory. For my friend, they were jailed. They were in jail for, you know, months. He didn't even, he doesn't even know how long he was in jail until they cannot keep them anymore. They asked them if they had friends or they know people in Europe. Nobody wanted to say because they don't trust and got released. So imagine somebody in Europe, somewhere in Spain, they know nobody just being released like that with no food, no money, no nothing. They become homeless right away. Cardboard coming back. Yeah. This resonates also with a lot of my work is on the central Mediterranean route. So thinking about people who are crossing from Libya and Tunisia towards mostly Italy, sometimes Malta. Um, and and some of what you're describing, of course, resonates with those experiences too. And sometimes they're also, I know, imprisoned on the way yeah. and then have to deal with it again in a different context once they reach Europe. Um, and And I'm also thinking about how these contexts have shifted over time as the rate of death has increased, for example. So now I think the Western Mediterranean has 
perhaps the highest rate of death as a border zone, the highest rate of death in the world. Um, well, that's what we document. That's what is documented. In reality, sales are always are still living from the coastal area in Dakar, even it's illegal. Now you have the local police who would monitor those. And it's a, it's, a, it's a law. If you get caught trying to leave to Europe, you go to jail. So <laughs> you, see, you see what we're having. It's like, it's a boomerang somehow happening. Now the policing is starting, you know, right in the coastal area of Dakar um, because we have Guineans coming all the way down. Because That's the hub where people um, recently there was a boat that was being chased and then they, they you know, they had to, um, they in my village where I was born, that's where they, they abandoned and then run into the village. So, we we they we still facing that, and there's another road that's less talked about, which is the Sahara. You know, people try to go to Canary Island, and, but they also try to go to Malaya. And uh, what's the other? What is the other terror? Ceuta. Uh, they try the two Spanish territory in uh, in in Morocco. People are trying to go there, and here we have businesses and businesses involved inside of that it's less talked about a lot of people are dying there and it's it's the market for people from algeria people from yeah evidence they passers people who pass people who's selling them actually there's it's horrible it's these are stuff people don't really talk about it but it's real yeah and there also, we could come back to what you said earlier about the wall at the U.S.-Mexico border. There also, there's the question of the wall and and the attempts to cross it and the horrific, violent policing of, of people yeah. who attempt to cross the yeah. wall. It's it's sad. You know, in Malaya, the wall, the barrier they put in there uh, is illegal even for animals. Yeah, they, they are YouTube YouTube videos of, of those stuff. It's, you, there's... This, it's really sad to see how, you know, but then there is, I'm fascinated by the obstination of, you know, the, I'm going to go, whatever happens to me will happen. If I pass, good. If I fail, I'll try again. I'd rather die than going back home, which is the third barrier I was talking about. The preference of dying rather than going back home of the failure. So there, there's all these bottlenecks that keep accumulating and piling up and piling up and piling up until it becomes impossible. And inside of all of that, can we make sure that maybe, you know, we we make the 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 acquisition of visa a little bit easier for people to to go, you know, there with some kind of regularity. Yeah, it's it's that easy. It's more you want to go go get a visa, and you know. But in the case of France, having all the required paperwork doesn't grant you a visa. I have I've, I've witnessed that myself. the The difference between applying a visa to France from the United States is way way different compared to the process of applying for a visa in Dakar, and I'm the same person at that time with a green card. I applied in Chicago. I was applying for one month. They gave me six months multiple entry. In Dakar, it's impossible. So 
it's it's how they are tightening up things in order to trigger something else happening elsewhere and say it's their fault after. So yeah. we've um, really come to the crux of you know such a simple problem of people who want to move, need to move, and and we have the bureaucracy to make it possible, and yet we restrict their movement and cause this kind of horrible, horrible violence. Um, it's, it's, it's so unnecessary. And yet um, human rights doesn't protect them. And yet in the text, yes, it's supposed to be protected. <laughs> but, you know, again, it's, uh, you know, to wrap up, I think it's, it's like the question, how can we make sure this thing that, you know, is so maybe beautifully written, um, get and be applied and closer and closer and closer to people. So then, you know, I, the moment I, I as an individual can start seeing myself in the others, I think, and vice versa, a lot of problem would be solved. And again, you know, it's, it's, it's the manyness in the, in, you know, within our differences, but then there's one thing we share, which is, you know, if we think about it deeply, the concept of humanness. And then if, if we re redirect and recenter things in there, I think a lot of problem would be solved. Thanks for listening to Migrations, a world on the move, a podcast produced by Global Cornell's Migrations Global Grand Challenge, a cross-disciplinary, multi-species initiative that studies how the movements of people, animals, microbes, resources, ideas, and more shape our world. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you'll also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us on Twitter at CornellMig. This podcast is hosted by Eleanor Painter, Migration's postdoctoral associate with the Mario Anaudi Center for International Studies, and produced by Megan Dement. Much of the podcast was produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Gayukono, the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize the nation's sovereignty and the indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land. Our music is Basically Really by Steve Fawcett.